Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. if we have a drought of joy in our culture today. I wonder if we have a drought, a shortage of delay. Now, we know all about shortages right now, don't we? Delays, joy. Statistically, it makes sense. Our suicide rates are through the roof. We're consuming antidepressants at a higher rate than we ever have before as a culture and in the world. My experience seems to confirm this as well. Yesterday, I was in a public place. Okay, it was McDonald's again, yes. And I watched as two different people are just angry. Angry individuals. One was me. No, I'm just kidding. See that more and more, just people becoming so upset. See, biblically speaking, we know this. We know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, we should anticipate that Christian joy should be unique. It should rise above the circumstances in our life. It shouldn't be stripped from us by the happenings of our everyday life. And yet, if you're like me, too often my joy is stripped by circumstantial things, right? Long day at the office, a difficulty financially, physically, whatever else it might be, strips us of our joyfulness. And I wonder this morning, if it's not just the world has a joy shortage, a drought of joy. I wonder if we ourselves might be experiencing a drought in joy. Now, here's the good news. Your joy, Christian, is eternally secure. Your joy, Christian, has to do with someone who was raised from the grave 2,000 years ago and still sits in the presence of God the Father advocating on your behalf. It cannot be stripped away. And so what I want to do this morning is invite you to do the hard work with me of unpacking the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the work we should have every Sunday morning, is to unpack the goodness and mercy of God from the scriptures and to reframe and reorient our hearts toward the goodness and mercy of God in Christ. Isn't that the work we should do together every Sunday morning? See, as we approach Psalm 16, here's our big idea that God preserves his people through resurrection. And this is cause for eternal joy. That God preserved us. He saw fit before the foundations of the world to push us through the process of death, but also bring us to resurrection so that we might find joy on the other side of death. What we're going to see is just basically two different movements. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to see kind of God's goodness in day-to-day life. 
And we're going to see kind of three different pictures of God's goodness on the earth. God's people, God's providence, and God's pedagogy. That's a big word for teaching and counseling. But you can see I had to get all P's. Like it had to happen. It had to line up. But in the second part, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about God's eternal goodness in verses 9 through 11. And I think we're going to find the sweetness and the marrow of God's goodness to us in Christ. So let's dig in. In Psalm 16, if you're in the Pew Bible with me this morning, we're on page 453. They're uh, scattered around in the chairs behind you. The psalmist says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. We start this morning that God's goodness is is evident to us in day-to-day life. We're going to start off with this inscription that starts the psalm. And and David actually kind of wrote this at the top. He said, a mictum of David. And you're saying, it's obvious what a mictum is. I have no idea what in the world a mictum is. I wish I could tell you, but uh, scholars have looked at this for centuries, and they haven't come to any conclusion. I loved this week I was studying, and we're kind of digging into what this says. And, And one commentator, finally, he writes all these paragraphs. And at the bottom, he just says, but the word mictum probably means writing, a writing of David. Thanks, guy. I appreciate that. You couldn't write that at the beginning, right? And it probably just means something just as an introduction, a writing of David. And so David is the author of this psalm. Now, David was a man of contradictions, was he not? David was a man after God's own heart, as uh, the New Testament would describe. He's deeply spiritual, but he's also deeply flawed. There are few characters in the Bible that exhibit such a mindfulness of God and yet also seem so absent-minded about spiritual things. You have these statements that are just so hefty and massive from David, and they're followed by sins like that with Bathsheba and, and elsewhere. And in that way, I wonder if our psalmist looks a little bit like us. What he starts off is he says, preserve me, O God. There's this call for a preservation. And he makes it to this good God. So he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, David knew a thing or two about refuge. The guy hid in a cave for some years at a time trying to hide from his nemesis, Saul. 
But here he is, he's seeking God as his refuge. Now just notice for a second that David is is a, a person who lives in a world of spears and swords and chariots, and he's finding refuge in a spiritually uh, present God. He lives in a very physical, tactile world, and he's ref- uh, kind of referring or refuging himself in God himself. And verse 2 kind of continues this picture. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David invites us into the, the prayer journal of his life. He invites us to know how he prays. And he says, I say to the Lord. And this is what he calls out. I, you are my God. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That word good stands out to us because we remember in Genesis chapter 1, whenever God would create something, he would pronounce it tobe. He would pronounce it good. He would uh, kind of declare its wholeness, its beauty, its worth, its value. And so David is kind of borrowing from that concept and saying, Lord, I have no tobe apart from you. I have no goodness, no beauty, no sense of worth outside of what you have provided for me. And so verses 3 through 8 are going to recount different facets of this goodness. And as we said, we've got these three Ps here, that God's people are good. God's um, providence is good. God's pedagogy is good. We're going to start in verses 3 and 4, that God's people are good. Look at what he says here in Psalm 16, verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See, David delights in God's holy one. That word saints might actually just mean holy ones. They're the holy in the land. This is a reference to God's faithful people. See, David looks beyond the circumstance, and he sees these faithful saints as kings and queens, as the language seems to imply. They are the excellent ones, the royals. He describes in verse 4, by way of contrast, those who run after other gods. That's what he says. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. See, these people are in pursuit. These uh, idolatrous people are in pursuit of their idols. And he says that he doesn't pour out their drink offerings of blood. He doesn't participate in their idolatrous worship. He doesn't take the names of these gods upon his lips. He says is this pursuit, this pursuit of idols, it multiplies sorrows. We're familiar with that, right? You ever see someone's sin just multiply their sorrow? You know, I'm at an age where we start to see some of our friends who got married uh, start to split their marriages, and you see how they're multiplying their sorrows. What, what they thought was a problem in their marriage becomes a multitude of problems in the splitting of their household. We're familiar in this area with the evils of addiction. When someone uh, kind of presses into a substance abuse and they become addicted to that, it totalizes. It zeroes out their bank accounts. It leverages all of their families so that they can feed this addiction. It is just total waste of their life. But before we get too comfortable with this sense of idolatry, we better turn the mirror on ourselves, right? There's an author from the 90s by the name of David Foster Wallace. And David Foster Wallace was not a believer in any sense of the word. Uh, He actually ended up taking his own life later on. 
But he wrote this passage that kind of stands out to us. And he says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only church chance or choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel that you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. There's this person just confirming what Jesus says. He says that we're all worshipers in some way or another. He says that the Father's seeking true worshipers, tells us in John chapter 4. See, we all are given to these idols of sorts, and when we pursue those, it multiplies our sorrow. See, idolatry and false loves always lead to sorrowful life. David kind of hints at that a little bit. So David refuses to pour out the drink offerings. He refuses to take the names of these idols upon his lips. And so God's people are a sign of his goodness on the earth. But it's not just God's people, it's God's providence, right? If we look at verses 5 and 6, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So you just notice the words that are used in these two verses. We see the word portion and lines or boundary lines, and we see the word inheritance. See, all of these kind of clue us into uh, a time in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 14 through 19, when Joshua and the 12 tribes of Israel finally inherited the land that was promised to their ancestor Abraham, and they started to apportion it up. And what they did is they took out these things called lots. It must have been like dice or something like that. And they started casting lots to see what tribes got what portions of land. And David's kind of tapping into this meaning, and he's saying, my chosen portion is good. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And, and there in chapter, verse 5, he says, you, God, you hold the dice. You hold my lot. You're in control of all of these things that are happening to me. And he sees the, the beauty of his inheritance in verse 6. Not just the stuff that he has, but the Lord himself. David is looking beyond the gift itself to the God who gives good things. So David sees God's goodness in his people. He sees his goodness in his providence. And finally, he sees his goodness in his pedagogy. That's a word that means teaching or counsel. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, God gives counsel. And and for David, this counsel was a a very practical thing. See, uh, a few different times in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, we see that David uh, inquires of the Lord. And what that meant was in the Old Testament, the high priest would have these things, and it was kind of kept in, near their heart in this uh, ephod, this linen ephod that they would wear. I was going to wear one this morning, but I decided against it. Um, but he had this umum and thumum, urum and thumum, thumum, excuse me. 
And it was kind of like this concept of when, when there was a serious question for the king, he could go to the high priest and he could inquire of the Lord and the Lord would kind of divine or uh, give this answer to the high priest through the Urim and the Thummim. And so David, when he's saying, you give me counsel, you give me direction, he's speaking of something very tactile. But he even presses a little bit further in that. In verse 7, he says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. This isn't just external guidance that God's giving him. David's talking about something inside of him that actually leads him and guides him and directs him. Before we get too uh, down the road this in this verse, David's not talking about this kind of follow your heart kind of Christianity that we have today. In fact, the Old Testament's pretty strong about not trusting our heart, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, that they're not to be trusted. And so uh, he's telling us that we should avoid uh, being directed by our heart, no matter what grandma tells you, right? But what he's saying is, is he's actually being directed internally, and he's being directed by the Holy Spirit. See, what happened with David is when he became king, he was anointed in in 1 Samuel 16. And it says that as soon as he was anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And so we should anticipate that David's leading is a lot like our leading because we have the Holy Spirit also guiding us. We should uh, sense the the promptings of the Spirit as Scripture passages come to our memory, as as we're prompted to pray, as we feel uh, the, the impulse to speak certain words. We're directed by the Holy Spirit of God. Not only does God provide counsel, verse 8, he's present. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. There's this uh, new trend out. I say it's new. It's new to me. But the Masterclass series is, is intriguing to me. You can go on, online and you can take these classes with these people that have done amazing things in their fields, Right? And so you can take a cooking class with Gordon Ramsay, and he won't call you an idiot sandwich, right? You can learn how to shoot a basketball from Steph Curry. You can do all of these different things. There's music classes and whatnot. Now, what would it be like if the master class actually came to you and lived in your house and pointed out the things that, that you needed to work on? Like you go out and shoot some baskets, but there, there's Steph Curry right with you, right? Or you go to cook dinner, and Gordon Ramsay's there. Maybe that wouldn't be a good thing. See, this is what David is describing. We don't just have great counsel. We have a great counselor. We have someone who's present with us, giving guidance, giving direction, always in love, always presenting himself to us. See, what we step away from these verses is we see that God is the author of good. David shows us the sense of God's goodness. He says in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. He shows us these areas, his people, his providence, his pedagogy, and he's showing us that God is good. Classical antiquity told us that there were three ultimate kind of transcendental qualities, goodness, truth, and beauty. They referred to it and said goodness is ethos, truth is logos, and beauty is pathos. And first century Christians kind of tapped into this meaning of these categories, and they said that God was, was the epitome of true good and true beauty and true goodness and, and kind of summed up those qualities. But here's the problem, that you and I 
have always sought goodness apart from God. We've lived like distorted mirrors. You ever go to a store and you try on a piece of clothing and you say, I look thinner in this mirror than in the last mirror I looked at in my house. Or you go to the gym and you go, I look thinner than I used to look, right? Not because you've been there long enough, but just because you're looking at a mirror that's distorted. You, we Christians do this. We take God's good things and we twist them and distort them. See, we find a way to distort the good things that God gives us. In fact, the Bible's showing us this all the time. It was in the garden that Eve was tempted to distort knowledge. When, when Satan came to her and tempted her, he said, uh, won't you be like God, knowing good and evil? And she says later on in Genesis 3 that uh, the fruit was pleasing to the eye and good to make one wise. Lemek in Genesis chapter 4 distorted justice. And he says, I've, I've killed a man for, for hitting me. I've killed a young man for slapping me or something. I can't remember exactly how it said it. Laban distorted authority and family. Remember Jacob's uncle Laban that just kind of uh, takes advantage of Jacob and kind of manipulates the whole situation. He distorts authority for his own purpose. David and Samson distorted sex and intimacy. Uh, David pursues Bathsheba. Samson pursues Delilah for this kind of forbidden sexuality. And so they've twisted it and they've distorted it. We also, even in the 21st century, are distorting God's good world. Think about the ways we spend our time. We spend our time trying to create good things to make us like God. We use cell phones to make us all-knowing. We use workout equipment to make us eternal. We use our social media outlets to make us all omnipresent. We're just kind of manipulating the things around us to replace God with ourselves. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer, and he says this. He says, sin has so many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits upon the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. This morning, God is the only creator of good. James tells us that every good thing given, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. David tells us in this psalm that there's no good to be found apart from God. Brothers and sisters this morning, if we are to find anything good, it's not apart from God. If you're here this morning and you're under the age of 15, I just want to tell you that there's nothing good to be found apart from God. There's nothing good for you to pursue outside of something that God gives you. And the encouragement this morning is to orient and direct your life in such a way that you pursue the good things that God has given, that you avoid the distortions that God has not given, that mankind has made. See, David gives us these three Ps as examples of his goodness. But there's one P that we might talk about that's not here. And it's this idea of permanence. That we could taste of God's people and God's providence and God's uh, pedagogy, and we could have all of those things for our 75 years of living and then die. Right? 
if God is to be a refuge, can he even save us from death? Can God save us from the death that he himself declared would come to us? Verses 9 through 11, I think, answer this question. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In verses 9 and 11, we see that God gives joy. And in verse 9, we see this word, therefore. That's a pretty important word. It's, it's kind of this, this hinge point of this psalm. See, it tells us that David is responding to everything that he's seen in verses 1 through 8, and now he's coming to this conclusion. And we see then that he emphasizes words like joy and rejoicing, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore in verses 9 and 11. See, what he's holding out for us is that God's presence is the place for Christian joy. Isn't that what he says in verse 11? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Perhaps you can think of some place that you find happiness this morning. You can think of the beach. The beach is that place you find happiness. Some of us, it's the golf course or the ballpark or the bank or work or whatever else it is. But let's not confuse the temporal happiness of earthly places with the all-satisfying joy of God's presence. Notice David's phrase uh, that speaks of his heart, his whole being his flesh, that this whole joy encompasses the totality of who David is. That's what he says in verse 9. He says, my heart is glad. He's speaking of this interior life. And then he says, my flesh, my exterior life also dwells secure. And in the middle of that, he says, my whole being rejoices. He's emphasizing the totality of this joy that he has. But couched in the middle of these two verses, in verse 9 and 11, uh, about pleasure and joy is a statement we need to pay attention to in verse 10. Look at what the psalmist writes. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, here's that issue of permanence that we were describing. See, David did die, didn't he? In fact, uh, Paul recognizes this in Acts chapter 13, verses 35 and 36. It's on the screen in front of you. Uh, Paul says this, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. See, what Paul is telling us is he's telling us that Psalm 16, verse 10, is not about David, primarily. Psalm 16, verse 10, is about Jesus. And we have good precedent to, to interpret it this way. Because Jesus told us that all of the law and the Psalms and the prophets were about him. So when we turn to Psalm 16, we can have confidence that David is not just writing about himself, He's telling us about Jesus. See, the truth is that this psalm is first about Christ, 
Jesus didn't decay. Jesus, who was crucified on Good Friday, such that the sky went black, such that the curtain in the temple, which separated God and man, was split in two. Jesus, who stayed in a grave for three days. Jesus, who when they came to apply more burial spice to his body on Sunday morning, couldn't be found. Jesus, of whom the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? This man was not decaying. Unlike any other human before him, Jesus went into a grave for the purpose of coming back out. By coming out of his tomb, Jesus showed all creation that he had eternally defeated death and sin. And he would not decay. See, only secondarily is this psalm about David and about us. Primarily, it's about Christ, but secondarily, we also can find hope in these pages. See, here, David is confident that he won't be decaying forever. You and I are confident that we also will not see decay. See, this confidence is rooted in Jesus' resurrection, not in my goodness and holiness. You and I can, with all integrity, say that we will not face death twice. Jesus has had his showdown with death. And by his victory, we have victory. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, isn't this like our God? Isn't this uniquely like our God? That God used the punishment for sin to defeat sin. God planned to defeat sin by its own punishment. See, the punishment for sin has always been death, right? You tell these stories to your kids. In Genesis chapter 2, God puts the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and he tells Adam and Eve, or he tells Adam, specifically, that if you eat of it, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We see this confirmed in Romans chapter 6, that, that Paul says the wages of sin is what? It's death. The, the, the cost of our sin, the cost of our rebellion against a righteous and holy God was our death, our judgment, our eternal condemnation. And what God has done is in his wisdom, he's twisted that, he's used that like a tool so that he might beat death. Only our God could use death for his purpose. By death, he's brought redemption to his people. By death, he's covered over our sins with his righteous blood. By death, he has set his true, true holy one in his presence to advocate on our behalf for all eternity. And by death, Jesus has brought resurrection to all of his believing people. Amen. We might miss this. We might miss the indestructible Christ and the connection to our joy. Indestructible Jesus who faced death and won. What that means for me and you, the Christian, your joy is indestructible. Our joy is as permanent as Jesus' life. 
And, and notice what the psalmist David does. He starts off with this prayer of, preserve me, be my refuge. And he concludes with a statement about resurrection. So David sees that God will preserve his people through a resurrected Jesus. Here's the thing. If you're like me, too often our joy becomes temporary, doesn't it? Sitting around with a group of friends recently where we're talking about how easily distracted we are, uh, how easily uh, distracted we are by earthly things, whether it's work or, or stuff or whatever else it is. We're just distracted and we lose focus on, on what God is doing in our midst. And in that way, we kind of lose touch with our joy, a risen Jesus. Too, too often, we, we think of ourselves as kind of at the receiving end of joy. We, we control whether we keep our joy or not. That's not what I wanted to say. Let me say that again. Too often, we think of our joy as something beyond our control. We think of joy as having to do with our temperament. You say, I'm a melancholic person. I, I just don't, I, I'm, I fit with melancholy. I, I'm just always sad. I'm always kind of removed. I'm not always happy. And so therefore, joy escapes me. Or we let uh, insignificant problems steal our joy, right? Oh, I've got to call a plumber. I've got to uh, fix this problem. I, I have this issue at work. This guy's driving me crazy. And we think that our joy is beyond our control. Christian, this morning, we have joy, access to joy for all eternity. Nothing keeps us from that. You know, if there's one thing I wish I could change about myself, sometimes it's my negative orientation. In fact, even that statement is a negative orientation, right? I think to myself that my negative orientation actually steals my joy. And that's not true. God has given me the fullness of grace to be able to pursue joy and find mercy in my time of need. The truth is this morning, our situation doesn't determine our joy. Our joy informs our situation. Our circumstance doesn't determine our joy. Our joy uh, informs our circumstance. If you don't like where you are and you're saying, God, I just want you to change this, you're probably praying the wrong prayer. Maybe God is inviting you to uh, live in Christian joy and a hope-filled resurrection even while you are in a bad situation. Reminded this morning that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, when we're raised to new life and the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us as Christians, that's the cause of this joy. Our job is to walk in step with that Spirit, to recount the glories of Christ and His resurrection, the mercies that have been given to us. See, the truth is this morning is that our view of resurrection can bring true joy beyond our circumstances. Our view of resurrection can give us true joy beyond our circumstances. That no matter what is happening to you in life, 
can be overcome with a, a mindfulness of God's resurrecting power in Christ. We can all think of examples, these sweet-spirited Christians that live around us, some of them in this very body. We can imagine what it is to live this focused, resurrected life because we've seen it in other Christian men and women who exemplify what it is to live in the sweetness of resurrection power. I wonder what it might be like for us to step into this. I'm going to commit myself to having a mindfulness of God's resurrection. His grace and mercy to me at the cross, his powerful victory over sin and death so that my circumstances won't have such a hold on me. I want to pray to that end this morning, that God allows his glory to shine through us as we hope in his son, where we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that we have hope and resurrection. We thank you that you didn't allow your Holy One, Jesus, to see decay. But you powerfully raised him to new life. And as we're united with Christ in faith, we also are raised up to new life. So Lord, we stand in awe of your goodness and mercy to us. We invite you to shape and form our hearts so that we would hope in your resurrection, that we wouldn't distort the good things that you've given to us and, and try and hope in those, but instead that we would hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Lord, be honored and glorified as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.